Okay, Luke 13. So if I stare off in the distance for a couple seconds, don't mind me. Uh, Luke 13, if you need a Bible, grab one from the edges of the room. Before we get into that, though, I'm just going to open us up in a time of prayer this morning. Lord, uh, just thank you. Thank you for who you are, your characteristics. Uh, We sing, Christ be magnified, Lord. We want Jesus Christ to be magnified in our life this morning and every day, Lord. Help us as we uh, read through your word. Um, Allow it to train us, to correct us, to rebuke us. Lord, we want to be uh, good servants of who you are, good stewards of the gift that you've given us, Lord. So just help us this morning. Uh, Be with us this morning. We invite the Holy Spirit here this morning with us as we go through your word and the book of Luke. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 13, we're actually going to take a half step back into Luke chapter 12, um, because Luke chapter 13 picks up right off the back of Luke chapter 12. So look at Luke chapter 12, verse 35 with me quickly. And this is just kind of a reminder of what Luke 12 was about and where we're going to pick it up from. It says this, Luke 12, 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So Jesus basically ends chapter 12 saying, quit being hypocrites. You know, you can interpret the seasons, but you don't know uh, what's going on in the present time. You can look at the clouds and, and the weather and, and the changing of the seasons, and you can tell what's going to happen, but you can't look around you and see what's going on in the present time. The kingdom of God is at hand, so you best settle accounts with people around you, and you better prepare yourselves because the Son of Man is coming at, at an hour that you do not expect. And he goes right in to verse 13. Look at, uh, or sorry, chapter 13. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says this. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So about 4 BC, uh, Herod did a construction project uh, to renovate a tower that was built to protect the original city of David. If you remember the original city of David, which is where kind of Jerusalem is, but the original city of David was actually, actually um, kind of on the, on the hillside. Uh, it was in the Kidron Valley. It was on the hillside of Mount Moriah. And up on top of Mount Moriah is where the temple is. The Temple Mount was built. And, and it's an elevated area above the city of David, the original city of David. And so for a tactical advantage for war, they built a tower up there so that soldiers could get a good sight line for people coming all around them, of people coming to attack. And so there's a tower built there. And so cut forward quite some time, 
and the Romans are in power over the region. And Herod the Great decides to take this tower. And at this point, there's the temples built. There's kind of the walls around it. There's the, the inner courts and everything. And there's this tower kind of right beside the, the temple, outside the temple walls. And so Herod the Great, he decides to take this tower and he does a renovation project on it. He makes it bigger. He makes it taller um, so that it could look over the temple and see what's going on in the temple. Because the temple was the religious, still is the religious center of the time. And in the temple courts, there's just a lot of tension going on. Just, it's just the epicenter of tension. And it still is even to this day. And if there was ever any trouble brewing from the Jewish people, it would all kind of start within the temple walls. And so the Romans wanted to have an eye on what was going on in there at all the times. And so Herod took this single tower and he kind of made it way bigger and he called it the Antonia Fortress. And so there's a bit of a debate as far as what exactly what the Antonia Fortress looked like. Uh, the historian Josephus he said it was actually big enough to hold five to 6,000 soldiers. Um, but we, pictures in general, whatever, we kind of more build it or see it like this. If you see, so there's the temple. Um, and then up in the top right there, they would, that's what they depict as the Antonia Fortress. So you can see it's like higher than the, than the temple walls. You can, the soldiers can stand on top and look down into what's going on in the temple at all the times. And so we don't really know exactly what the Antonia Fortress looked like, but we know it was something like this. It was, it was taller than the temple. It was connected to the temple walls. So if there's ever any issue, the Roman soldiers could just, you know, quick hop over the fence and they're on the walls of the temple. They could start slinging down arrows, do whatever they want to try and squash any uprising. Just keep things under control. And so we know that that's kind of, we don't know what it looks like, but we know that's what they used it for. They used it to keep an eye on everything going on which I think we can all guess the Jewish people, they didn't really like that. It kind of ticked them off, as I'm sure you could imagine, some Roman soldiers looking down on them at all the, all the time. And so as Jesus is talking here uh, from chapter 12 into 13, there's some, they come up to Jesus and they tell him about this event that happened where the blood of people were mixed in with their sacrifice at the temple. Now, we don't know exactly when, what event this was that happened, what it's referring to, but we can probably safely conclude there was some sort of uprising going on within the temple, and, and Pilate had to send his guys out from the Antonia Fortress to squash some uprising, and some people were put to death as the sacrifices were going on, and the blood of Jewish people and the blood of the animal sacrifice mixed together and then Jesus also recounts uh, a tower of the tower of Siloam fell, killed 18 people. Two different events of disaster that occurred that leads, leads to death. And Jesus asks the question, do you think that these people whose blood were mingled with their sacrifice were worse sinners than other Galileans because this happened to them? Or do you think that those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell upon do you think they were worse offenders than all other offenders in Jerusalem? And so one of the amazing things time and time again we see as we read the Bible is Jesus's ability to just cut through the heart of the subject here. His ability to effortlessly just kind of get rid of the chaff 
uh, that, that people ask him and just really get to the heart of the matter here and, and redirect questions that people ask him. You'll see it time and time again as you read through the Bible. And so at the word of Jesus, like a sword that cuts through soul and spirit, he just redirects questions that people bring to him and he gets to the heart of the matter. And in this case, Jesus can see right through go, what's going on. The, the question is not, why did this happen to these people? The real question is, what does this mean to you? Does those people dying mean that they're worse sinners than you are? Did God enact judgment on those people because they were sinners? No, that's what Jesus is trying to say. That's not what it means. This is the real question. Why didn't it happen to you? Quit worrying about what everyone else is doing, is what Jesus is saying, and start worrying about you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And here's a stat for you. I think I've told this stat before, so it won't be a surprise to you guys. A good stat for you. 10 out of 10 people die. Bold stat, I know. Friends, everyone dies. Well, unless Jesus comes back first, but we'll talk about that at the end of the sermon today. Friends, a good stat, 10 out of 10 people die. And we like to put people in different camps, you know, we like justifying reasons for things happening. Well, that person got sick because they didn't come to Sunday night prayer, or, or that person got sick because they didn't tell enough, enough people about Jesus. And, or we go, God, what have I done to deserve this? What do I need to do? And so when we start thinking and, and asking questions like that is when we start to allow the seed of legalism into our hearts. The notion that there's good people and that there's bad people we like to sort them into two different camps, don't we? The good people are blessed and the bad people are cursed. But here's the truth. And here's another stat for you. It might be hard for some of you to hear, but you're a bad person. <laughs> you're not a good person like you might think. You but, well, compared to Timmy sitting next to me, I'm pretty good. I didn't speed on the way here. But here's the problem. God doesn't compare you to Timmy sitting next to you. God compares you to himself. And Jesus tells us later, we're going to see later down the road in a, a few Sundays, Jesus says that no one is good but God alone. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here in the first part of chapter 13. The question isn't, did those people die because they're worse sinners than everyone else? The question is, why wasn't that me? Compared to God, we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God and no man can measure up to the standard that glor of glory that God has set. And when we start thinking of terms of what can I do or, or what can I not do and we, we start thinking of how can I sin less, what do I need to do so that I can become a good person and that God will bless me, that's when the seed of legalism quickly grows into making rules and laws around things that need to be done in order to get into God's good books, rather than what Jesus tells us. Look at what verse 5 says again. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus just says repent. Quit worrying about who's better or worse and just repent. <laughs> repent and turn to God. Repent and tell Jesus that he is the Lord of your life and that you believe that God raised him from the dead. Repent and turn from the old ways of loving darkness. Does it mean that you're magically going to turn into a good person? No. No one is good but God. Does it mean that you're going to magically stop sinning? No. 
Does it mean you're going to become a better person than the one sitting beside you? No. (laughs) Does it mean that bad things aren't going to happen to you anymore? No, it doesn't. But tragedies and things happen to people on this earth, and that's the sad reality of the fall of, of Adam and Eve, and that's Satan having power on this earth. The question isn't, why did this happen? The question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Because friends, penance and penitence, they don't equal repentance. Just because you feel bad about something or you promise to do better or you beat yourself up a little bit about doing some bad things, you promise you'll do better next time. If I work a little bit harder next time, then I'll be in God's good books. Friends, here's the facts. You're a sinner. If you were smited this very second, God would be justified in his actions. The only way into God's good books is through Jesus Christ. Acknowledge you're a sinner, ask for Jesus to wash you whiter than snow, and then go and sin no more. Look at verse 6, the parable of the fig tree. And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, For three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So Jesus continues on with the parable, and now in context, this parable Uh, refers to the nation of Israel. A man goes out to a fig tree planted in his vineyard and for three years he finds no fruit on it and he wants to cut it down. And so we know the metaphor of a fig tree often refers to Israel in the Bible, the nation of Israel in the Bible. Hosea 9, Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 24. If you're note takers, that's where we see Israel referenced and, and symbolized by a fig tree. And so the fig is a symbol for Israel. And in this parable, a man comes around year after year, uh, finds no fruit. But the vine dresser says, hey, give me one more year. Just give me one more year. I'll nurture it. And if it still bears no fruit next year, then we can cut it down. And so Jesus is communicating, saying, hey, I've come. I'm looking for fruit. And there's nothing going on. Reminding the nation of Israel, saying, listen, I'm here. I'm looking for fruit, and I don't see any. Time is coming to an end here. Now, though this parable relates to the nation of Israel, I think we can, uh, it's a good reminder for us too. We can still apply this to our lives, that the Lord is patient. The Lord is long-suffering. The Lord is willing to put things off in an effort, effort to wait for fruit to come. But we need to understand that the waiting won't happen forever. God gives second chances, but there is a final chance. He won't keep coming back time and time again, checking and rechecking. There will eventually become a point when the tree just needs to be dealt with. Look at verse 10 as Jesus goes into the synagogue. We're going to roll through this chapter pretty quick this morning. Verse 10 as as Jesus goes into the synagogue. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. 
And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And so as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, um, just random little fact for you guys, this is the last time that it's recorded before, it's the last time that it's recorded that Jesus goes into a synagogue and teaches right here in Luke uh, 13. And so as he's in this synagogue and teaching, there's a woman there for 18 years who's been physically bent over, couldn't straighten herself up. Um, though we will find out later in the chapter here that this physical condition is a, is a secondary symptom to what's really going on, a secondary condition to her real spiritual condition. And so Jesus calls this woman over. Uh, he lays his hands on her and he says, you're free from your disability. And immediately she was made straight and she gives the proper response, which is what? Glorify God. The proper response to a healing, we glorify God. The proper response to waking up this morning, glorify God. The proper response to food on the table, the proper response to taking your next breath right now, proper response to your next blink is to glorify God. And this woman is healed and, and they start getting excited and, and they probably know her very well. She's been bound by the spirit for 18 years and yet she still comes to the synagogue to worship and have fellowship with other believers. And now she can stand up straight and they all begin worshiping God. And, and can you just imagine seeing, like just visualize that, seeing, you know, someone that you've known for maybe 18 years, going to church with them regularly with a disablement or a, a severe disability like this and to see an obvious healing like that like man this building would go crazy right and so that's probably what's going on in this synagogue right now well except for one look at verse 14 but the ruler of the synagogue indignant furious indignant because jesus had healed on the sabbath said to the people there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Verse 15, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or, or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. First thing here, kind of funny, classic. Uh, I lost the word. What's it called when you, uh, rather than addressing Jesus himself, he just kind of addresses the crowd and, you know, the ruler of the synagogue and goes, whoa, 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 you can't be healing on the Sabbath day. You want to heal? You come any of the other six days, but not on the Sabbath day. And again, Jesus just cuts through the issue here. He just cuts through the heart, the real issue at hand here. And with a bit of a harsher tone than he talked to the crowd earlier in in chapter 13, he says, you bunch of hypocrites, you'll gladly untie your ox or your donkey on the Sabbath day and take them to the water, but you won't let a woman, a, a child of Abraham, one made in the likeness of God, you won't let a human be healed. And by saying that, you're putting the life of an animal above the life of a human. You know, I, I ruffled a couple feathers uh, a couple years ago. 
standing up on the pulpit, I said this. I don't, I think a couple people are still actually a little upset with me, but I'm going to say it again. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, your dog is not on the same level as a human. Your dog does not have the spirit of life breathed into them by God. Your donkey or your ox is not the same level as a human. Human beings are special, created in the likeness of God. But friends, in our day and age, we aren't so much different from the people of the the leader of the synagogue, are we? Our nation cares more about the downfall of, of zoos and aquariums that houses animals than we care about housing homeless and mentally disabled. The nation cares more about how we can legalize uh, abortion and assisted suicide than we can about criminalizing the, the killing of animals. Friends, human life is important to God. The lives of a human is important to God. The woman was bound for 18 years. And in a moment, Jesus loosed the knot that Satan had upon her and called these so-called rulers and, and leaders of the synagogue, rulers and leaders of the faith, who had a problem with it. Look at verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So this parable can be a bit uh, tricky at first. Um, (laughs) As you're reading through the Bible, it's a bit tricky. You come to something like this and you just go, okay, you skim over it. Um, If you were to look at this parable superficially, you might say something like, well, first of all, we know that mustard seeds don't grow into big trees. If you know a mustard seed, it, it more grows into like a small bush waist high. I've heard, I don't know anything about mustard seeds, so I had to Google it. I've heard some mustard seeds can grow big depending on the variant, but in general, mustard seeds don't grow to a massive height that can uh, care for birds and, and house nests of birds. So there's obviously a, a supernatural thing going on here with the mustard seed. So obviously we must say the mustard seed is the church. You know, it just started from one and then it grew big and all the nations of the world are coming into the tree, which symbolized the birds and and they come and make nests in the branches and, and the leaven that the woman took. Well, we could say that's that's like the, God's word emanating throughout the world and touching everything until it touches the ends of the earth. And that sounds pretty good, right? That's a pretty good solid metaphor and we could move on. But I just think there's a couple problems with that. And that's actually a very common um, interpretation of that parable. Jesus doesn't explain this parable, so we don't really know what it means. But there's just a couple problems with saying, oh, this is just the church and the nations are the birds gathering in the trees and, and the leaven is God's word spreading throughout the earth. And cool, let's move on. Here's a couple problems. The first thing is this. And when you don't know what's going on, a good thing to do is to look at previous intonations in the Bible of where these symbols have been used. So the first thing is this. Anytime we see birds being used in the Bible as symbolic language, it always refers to evil. For example, a good example is the parable of the 
um, sower and the seed. If you know that one, when the farmer throws seed out and some of the seed lands on thorns, some of the seed lands on the path, some of the seed lands on good, rich soil. Um, and the seed that was thrown on the path, it says birds of the air came and ate it. And now when Jesus was explaining what that parable meant, he said this. He said, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not end, understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So the birds that came and snatched up the seed from the path symbolize the evil one coming and snatching up the seeds. Then the symbolism of supernatural growth in trees. Again, we have some references to that in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and in Daniel. We get symbolism of supernatural growth of trees. It refers to kind of world power, great power. Um, and then in the second example of leaven, anytime we have an, a, a symbol of leaven in the Bible, man, that's not good. <laughs> leaven is a negative thing in the Bible. During Passover, we know leaven needs to be taken from the like purged of the house. Uh, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so a typical interpretation of the theology that, hey, this is telling us that the church is going to get big and awesome and there's going to be people coming to it and God's word is going to spread throughout the kingdom. And um, some might even refer to dominion theology, which is saying, hey, the, the church of God is going to take over the world. We're going to be in all sorts of government and schools, and we're going to be in everything. They use this uh, scripture reference to confirm their idea. Well, on second thought, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily the correct interpretation. Yes, the kingdom of God is going to grow. I would say that. No doubt about that. We've seen the mustard seed that grows supernaturally into a tree and like leaven that makes flour grow. But I see this parable as a warning. A warning to the church, just because there's growth doesn't necessarily mean it's good growth. Be careful of the synagogue rulers in your church who tell you, hey, you can't be healed on the Sabbath. Be careful about the synagogue rulers in your church who care more about animals than human lives. And so I see this as a warning to the church. Hey, church is going to get big, but there's going to be birds of the air coming in there. There's going to be leaven coming in from underneath. And I think we see that in the church today, don't we? And I also think this is a good reminder for me to take a step back and just remind us that I used to actually, I used to say this, and I've changed my tune 180. I used to say this, the Bible is easy to understand. You should have no problem understanding the Bible. It's made for us to understand, which it is made for us to understand. But friends, the Bible is confusing. <laughs> the Bible can be tough to understand. There's a lot of metaphors and symbols and stuff going on that, as you read through it, and you know this, as you read through the Bible time and time again, you pick out new things and it's living and active and the Bible can be tough to understand. It's not as easy as just reading through and taking a surface level. So I encourage you, friends, read your Bible, meditate on it. If you, something you don't understand, it's okay. Ask, come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Matt. We'll give you some excellent commentaries to look at because don't get disheartened uh, when someone says, oh, the Bible is easy to understand. Like, let's be honest with each other. It's not that easy to understand. I used to be the guy that said, hey, read your Bible. It's easy. You can do it. You can do it.
But it's tough. It's tough to read. It's tough to understand and pick out and match things together. The amount of symbolism going on in the Bible is insane. And so, friends, meditate on the word. It's good. It takes time, but it's good. Look at verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Stop right there. Man, having a theoretical conversation with Jesus must be a pain, eh? <laughs> time and time again, you, you know, someone asks a question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus goes, okay, this guy, I'm going to cut right to the heart. Don't worry about how many people or how few people will be saved, but you, you strive to enter through the narrow door. Because here's the thing, many people are going to strive to do it. Many people are going to seek to enter and many won't be able to. The master will come and shut the door and you will be outside knocking saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he'll answer, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you come from. Look at verse 26 as he goes on. He says, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Friends, being close with Jesus doesn't mean that you're with Jesus. For the people that Jesus was talking to, they were literally walking side by side with Jesus. Like They were literally going through the streets, hearing from the word, the mouth of Jesus, the word of God was speaking directly to them, and it simply wasn't enough. Simply being near Jesus is not enough. The people knew the right words. They said, Lord, Lord. They called him Lord. They ate with him. They heard his teaching. They fellowshiped with other believers. They, they came to church every week. Heck, they even went probably to the September long weekend camp out. But that's not enough. Many will seek to enter, yet not all will be able to. In the book of Matthew, Jesus said this, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Do you know why the gate is narrow? Because there's only one way in. There's only one way in. In the book of John, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The door is narrow because there's only one way in. It's through Jesus Christ. And the general human sentiment is that, no, that can't be true, right? The, the default attitude is, there must be another way. I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm nice to my neighbor. I didn't speed here. I give to homeless people. And remember Timmy? I'm not as bad as Timmy. <laughs> He's terrible, that guy. Paul talks about the offense of the cross, the offense of the cross in the book of Galatians. Paul says this, basically. He says this in Galatians 5. He basically says, I'm going to... Man, the words are not there today. What is it? I'm going to... Paraphrase. Nailed it. I'm going to paraphrase. 
He says this, if I preach the gospel, if I preach, sorry, if I preach the law, I'm losing it. If I preach the law and I tell people that you can be saved by being a good person and following the law and peace and love to all of humanity and the people are going to like me, they're going to be eating up the words I say because I'm basically saying you can do it. You can do it and you become a glorified inspirational speaker. Come on, you can do it. That's what Paul's saying. If I preach the law and I just tell people, you can do it, come on, then people will start to like them. Rather, if I preach the narrow door, the saving work of the cross that Jesus Christ hung upon, I'm telling people, you cannot do it. <laughs> Friends, you cannot do it. And to many, that is offensive, the offense of the cross. They don't want to hear that they can't do it. They need help from someone other than themselves. If I just gird up my loins, I can do it. No, friends, you can't do it. To hear that the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the only way in is offensive to a lot of people. So who will get through the narrow door? Look at verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at, the table, recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Who will get through the narrow door? Man, that's you and me, friends, the church of Jesus Christ. From the north, the south, the east, the west, the picture of the church. People from all over the land will come and they'll recline at table in the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom of God, the things are a little bit different than what we like to think they are. They're a little backwards to how we think they are. It says some of the last who will be first and some who are first will be last. Look at the final set of words here from Jesus in chapter 13. As we go through this last little bit quickly, uh, we get two different insights into the character of Jesus. Let's look at the first insight we get. Verse 31 to 33 says this, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem, which is a hint of irony there in the end, I think, kind of a little jab. But Jesus is focused on the task at hand, given to him by his father, fear of death, from Herod means nothing to him as he has his sight set on the goals that his father's given him. The phrase today, tomorrow, and the third day, uh, repeated twice by Jesus here in a span of just two verses, a phrase commonly used to signify that nothing will stop what is set in motion. Man, the fear of God should be greater than the fear of man, and that's what Jesus has here. It's been said that if you can kneel before God, then you can stand before any man. As Jesus says, that fox, you tell that fox to get away. Jesus knows what he's doing and he's focused on the task that his father's given him. That's the first characteristic, focused, doesn't have fear of man, has fear of God. Look at verse 34, as we see a lament over the city of Jerusalem, 34 to the end. It says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Compassionate and loving, characteristics of Jesus. How he longed to bring them under his wing, protect and care for the people of Jerusalem. How he longed to keep them safe and nurture them, but they just weren't willing until the day of Jesus' return and they look upon him, the one whom they've pierced, and they mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. Let me ask you this question this morning as Martin comes up to lead us in one more song at the end here. Simple question as we wrap up. Actually, you guys stand with me as we wrap up here. Let me just ask you this one question. Are you ready? Simple question. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Don't worry about if your neighbor's ready. You guys might go, oh, I think I'm ready, but you know who's really not ready is, yeah, you guessed it, Timmy. No, don't worry about that. Worry about you. Are you ready, friends? Don't look around and think if you're, well, I'm a better sinner than this guy, so I probably am. No, friends. Many will strive to enter through the door, but few will be able to. The question is not, why are those things happening to those people? But what does this mean to me? And because this isn't an elementary school test, I'm going to give you the answer. <laughs> what does this mean to me? The answer is repent. Friends, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord is coming again soon. And as you look around at tragedies, at, at shootings, at things going on in the world, the question isn't why. The question is, what does this mean to me? And the answer is repent, turn to the Lord, strive to enter through the narrow door, worry about you, worry about your heart with Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Lord, uh, we love you, Lord. <laughs> we love you, Jesus. Uh, I personally today repent, Lord, before you. Uh, I confess that I'm a sinner, Lord. I confess that... Uh, I do things I don't want to do, Lord, but uh, I'm a sinner. Uh, I, I just, Lord, confess that today you have every right uh, to smite me. Uh, Lord, compared to your awesome power, I am nothing, Lord. But we give thanks this morning for the Son, Jesus Christ, and his saving work on the cross, that through the Son, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we're seen as white as snow, as he's at the right hand of God interceding for us even in this moment, Lord. We just give you praise and glory for that, and we thank you, Lord. Uh, Lord, help me this week to go and sin no more. Uh, bring clear to my eyes when I do sin and I need to repent, Lord. Uh, help me magnify Jesus Christ this week. We just give you all the glory, Lord. All glory is given to you, and we thank you for this day. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing one more song.